Before we start today's episode of Fintech Insider, we just wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the trusted brand of the financial services industry with over 1,250 customers, including more than 250 payment companies and more than 350 banks, creating a robust ecosystem of leading banks, payment, and fintech companies. These companies use Equinix private interconnection to quickly and securely connect to cloud providers, customers, and partners wherever they are in the world. Hello, everybody. Welcome to FinTech Insider Insights. I'm Sam Mall. Hope you're all staying safe and healthy wherever you are in the world. Given the situation in the world right now, it only seems right that we discuss COVID-19. So for this episode, we want to dig into the impact it's having on small businesses in the U.S. in particular. Well, I'll be looking at the options that our guests have from the banks, lenders, the government, fintechs, and, and how everyone within the community is trying to help each other. So to dig into those topics, we basically reached out to some of the smartest people that we know. So these include Jane Barrett, the Chief Advocacy Officer for MX. Hey, Jane, how are you? Good. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. And I'm assuming you are in Utah writing this out? I am indeed. It's a, uh, a wonderful place to be isolated. <laughs> well, we also have, we're going to go to the opposite end of what the response you just said. We're going to go to John Pitts, who's the policy lead for Plaid. John, how are you? I'm great here in uh, Washington, D.C., in a densely populated area, but sitting far away from any other people. So, like I said, the direct opposite of Jane Barrett, who's out in the middle of beautiful Utah. And last but not least, Jill Castillo, the CEO of Citizens Bank of Edmond. Jill, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. It's great to see you. Um, and as we're doing this, we'll probably hear a train go by. This is the most Oklahoma thing. There's um, which going I by right about. now. <laughs> <laughs> and probably some big trucks going down the road. But hey, that's we, we've got the U.S. covered. Utah, Oklahoma, Florida, and D.C. This is the most American show we could possibly do. So with that, let's get started. So it's no secret that probably the hardest hit, and as far as the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic, are small businesses and the self-employed. So let's take a look at some stats to kick us off. To put this SME business challenges into context, coronavirus currently affects 175 countries around the world and consequently is having a huge impact on the global economy. A study from JP Morgan back in 2016 stated the median average of small to medium-sized businesses hold 27 days cash buffer reserve. 25% of these hold just 13 days this was before the unprecedented economic strains from the pandemic we're going through. Right now, coronavirus is shutting down a lot of non-essential industries, meaning that many SMEs have no work coming in and therefore no money. And 22 million people in the U.S. are currently unemployed due to the pandemic. And that number is only rising. We'll expect to see a much higher number come this Thursday when the jobs report comes out. So basically, we're in one hell of a situation right now. Um, you know, worldwide governments can't ignore this issue. They've rolled out stimulus packages to help keep these businesses afloat. So just a quick summary for our listeners on this, and then we will jump into our guest and their commentary. So in the U.S., the government launched a $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus bill with at least $350 billion in loans to small businesses. We've also exhausted that, by the way. And hopefully today, if it hasn't happened already, we'll have another stimulus bill that will be coming out at roughly the same amount. Big banks weren't ready to deal with the number of applicants and their portals really weren't 
ready to go on day one. I think Bank of America got up the fastest. As of last week, the $350 billion allocated for small businesses was already distributed, with many SMBs left out of receiving any credit. And we will talk about those numbers. And I think for our folks that are listening, they'll find those numbers to be staggering. The government is being lobbied to provide more funding for those that have received none and are still struggling. Across the Atlantic in the UK, the Treasury launched the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme, the CBILS. Love that. In the US, we called it CARES. I think we have a better name. To support small and medium-sized businesses with an annual turnover up to 45 million pounds with access to loans, overdrafts, invoice finance, and asset minus of up to 5 million pounds for up to six years. This will also make a business interruption payment to cover the first 12 months of interest payments and any lender levied fees. This means SMEs will benefit from no upfront costs and lower initial repayments. As of the 15th of April, the UK finance reported 1.1 billion pounds lent via 6,020 loans. Banking industries experts say total lending under the emergency scheme has grown by 700 million in the last week. So in other words, a lot of programs have been launched by the government on both sides of the Atlantic, and there's a persistent problem on how to get the money to people's hand and how to do this quickly. So let's dig into the U.S. challenges specifically for this. So we're talking about SME challenges as far as, one, getting the money into their hand and applying for these. And, man, uh, I don't know other way to say it. This is going to be tough to only do in 15 minutes. All right. So, one, let's talk to somebody who's on the front lines. Jill Castilla with Citizens Bank of Edmonds. How many ballpark loans have you actually processed now and how much money has been allocated? So we're just a tiny little bank. We've done 250 loans, about $16 million. And we've got about 150 more in the pipeline. So if we replenish those funds, we'll be, we'll be running. Yeah, what's, what, what I find amazing about this, and this is when I said we get to some interesting stats, and, and anyone on this call, correct me if I'm wrong, that $350 billion that we had talked about in the U.S. government that's already gone out to SMEs. If I remember right, that's been claimed by about 1.6 million small business owners. How many ballpark do we have in the U.S.? 30 million. Yeah. Uh, so about 28.4 million to go. That might be a problem. Uh, Jane, how do you think we're doing? <laughs> I mean, it really does sort of show some of the systemic issues when – you know, it's just like the vast number of, of companies needing help, like meeting the needs of 3% of companies and just given the days of uh, traction that businesses have left. I think what we're seeing on the other side is the massive amount of people filing for unemployment. And you have to assume a large proportion of those are coming from small business. So I think, you know, there is a huge heavy lift for both you know, the banks and for credit unions and for fintech providers who can provide lending services to really make sure that things are in place. But I mean, you can't, it was a, it was a desperate stress test of the entire financial system and uh, we didn't do great. So I'm not going to say that Jill and Jane aren't policy wonks, but um, I'm going to go ahead, John, and say you are the chief policy wonk, at least on this call, of the three J's that have joined us. The reality is, and I, in my opinion, and John, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the reality is Congress moved, in my opinion, actually faster than I thought they would um, under our current environment um, to get something like this out the door. But, you know, I think as expected, we didn't have a lot locked down. I know, Jill, you were telling me how you're up at 2 a.m. in the morning continually looking at policy that had come out. Um, 
So um, looking backwards, John, how good of a job did we do? So I think the primary objective here for Congress and for the administration was speed. And we absolutely met the objective of speed um, quite well. In fact, I think this is probably uh, more loans in two weeks than the SBA has made in the last 12 years combined, which is an astonishing figure in terms of the impact and speed with which this happened. Um, But we've also, as Jane and Jill pointed out, seen some of the real downsides of that speed in a first-come, first-served program. Uh, The latest numbers I've seen are that 26,000 businesses, 26,000, were responsible for $96 billion worth of loans. So that is more than a quarter of the overall money went to 26,000 businesses at an average loan amount of $2 million per business. That is not well tailored to the really small and in many cases, most heavily impacted businesses. And that's been the real downside of the speed is some of the businesses that urgently needed this didn't get a chance to get it. Yeah, I know um, a hot item in the news today that's been out is uh, around the loans that went out is, for example, Shake Shack. So Denny Meyers um, restaurant that he owns, which I would not call a small business. actually received $10 million um, um, under this program, but he actually is returning the money. So he went out on LinkedIn and so did the CEO for Shake Shack to say, uh, we are returning those funds. Um, And I think for for anybody that's followed Denny Myers, I don't think they'd be surprised by that. Um, I know we've had some others like Ruth Chris, uh, just to call some attention to him. Um, I know there's a couple other companies, though, that fell under that. I really wouldn't put those companies in the category of small business. And Jill, I'll put you on the spot. For for listeners overseas, what would you classify as a small business in the U.S.? How would you categorize them? Well, I mean, locally, it's under 50 is how we typically look at what is, if you have little small business cohorts, that's what we look at. So, um, you know, on Main Street, there's very few that are under, I mean, they're over 50 employees, but I don't necessarily think that that should be the cutoff. I also thought, it's kind of an interesting move by Shake Shack. Whenever they're giving this money back, it doesn't go back to small businesses. That was authorized to them. They could have taken that money and done a grant program to other restaurants. But our average loan was sixty thousand. Our median loan amount was thirty thousand. Um, and we, you know, there's so many ten ninety nines. We talk about the thirty million number. That doesn't count those ten ninety nines contract employees that are also qualify underneath this. And they really, they're the ones that really got the shaft whenever they, the guidelines came out two days that they basically had access to funding. Many of them got pushed to the back of the line. And we, we triaged according to need whenever we um, started our funding um, priority list for, you know, there's only 55 of us and you have this demand of 350 um, small businesses that need this loan and trying to figure out kind of like a medical triage of who, who needs the tourniquet applied the fastest. And if I can just jump in, Jill, I mean, I think one of the things that's amazing about what you just described is a median loan amount of 30,000. From the data that I've seen, um, that's one of the hardest loan amounts to get. There are many banks in the United States that participated in this program who wouldn't even take an application for less than $50,000. And again, if you look at the total number of small businesses in need, Many of them didn't have existing bank relationships. Many of them didn't need a million dollars, and they are therefore not the top priority customer of the lenders who were able to participate. 
this is an area where I think if the new funds are appropriated and fintechs are now able to participate, uh, you're going to see a lot more small loans in the $30,000 range that community banks and fintechs are really optimized to make in a way that the biggest banks are not. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, um, John, because when we talk about this, I think that is such a such a salient point to point to to drill in on because this is really community banks and correct me if I'm wrong, Jill, something like uh, 40% of the loans that go out to small businesses done through the community banks. Um, the big banks really weren't set up for this. When they're asked to participate in it, this, this isn't their typical customer that they would go after. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it shocked anybody within the industry that we saw a rollout like this. Jane, you wanted to say a point on this? Yeah, I think one of the, and I guess it's it's anecdotal evidence that we all know to be true, is that especially when you get into the very small businesses, independent contractors or proprietors, a lot of them engage with their money in the same way as consumers do. They may just open a retail account, not even have a business account. Um, and so they don't necessarily have relationships with their banker, you know, someone to call and, and get them moving up the queue. So there really is almost a divergent part where you have established businesses who have accounting departments, who have relationships with banks, who are able to, you know, get attention and move things forward. And then there is this entire world of people who really haven't engaged in the financial system in a way that, you know, other businesses do. And I'm hoping, as John does, that with this next tranche of funding, it will be easier for these smaller businesses, micro businesses and smaller businesses to both get attention and get funding. Yeah. And Jane, one of the things, um, and I love MX, um, love Plaid, um, and, and Jill, I love you and your bank. <laughs> and there's many other companies I love. I'm so full of love. It's unbelievable. Just, I hope everybody loves how I covered my, my ass on that. Um, but it's true. But Jane, one of the things I love about MX, uh, um, I know your CEO and, and, and really well, Ryan Cowboy is a good friend. Um, he's been widely quoted using this rallying call to digitize and to prioritize digital initiatives, both within community banks, fintechs, large banks, and everything else. Um, I'm going to give you the most softball um, ask in the world. Why? Why is that so important? So, I mean, we already engage with 2,000 different banks and, and credit unions, providing data services and software for people to engage with their, for companies to engage with their customers. Um, in the past, it's been, and digital transformation is the most widely overused phrase, I think, in business generally, but it has been around just this very slow movement towards what was in person, in branch, you know, to actually much more self-service and being able to optimize the high-touch services for humans right? and then be able to really scale the lower-touch services. Um, I think where we've seen, um, you know, we've seen institutions, credit unions, banks who have great digital practices already be able to focus on what was that last mile, which is how do we get our workers working from a safe environment, right? How do we make sure that our call center can actually do video conference so it's a much higher touch, right, from the past? And so when you had all of those pieces in place, to do that last piece quickly, it was still a very heavy lift, but it wasn't insane. For 
companies that have not undertaken, let's look at, you know, let's look at our data sets, look, look at who our customers are, how we're servicing them, where the highest needs are, and now how do our products align to that? You can't do that in a short amount of time. So the, the rallying cry really is this isn't something that's going to go away with the virus. This is a fundamental turning point in the industry. And it has accelerated both technology adoption and fintech integrations in a way that is, um, it's pretty profound in the things that we've been able to do in a, in a short amount of weeks. So the why is because it's where people are, right? You have to meet customers where they are and now they're 100% digital. Yeah, I was saying, speaking of customers where they are. So Jill, I I actually think I'm getting almost tired of using y'all as a case study. So you got to quit doing such a damn good job. Um, but I mean, you're, you're a bank with one branch in Edmonds with maybe 55, 60 employees, right? I mean, how do you all address something like this? It's not like you have a staff of massive engineers. You're ever relying upon your fintech partners. Well, it's been amazing to see how much our, our, our team cares for our customers and our community. No, and they fully embrace that role of being these economic first responders, knowing that we were the only, we were the gateway to these funds for our small business community. What was wonderful is the rapid call to action, uh, both in the FinTech community and community banking, where you saw a lot of marriages happening really quick to help us leverage technology to be able to serve those that community better. I'm super grateful for MX because they are allowing us rapid access to eTran. Um, Tesla, they provide us free um, customer relationship management tools so we could start getting applications in quickly and be able to manage that appropriately. And so we saw um, our bank, I think, really benefited from having rapid digital transformation and a really resilient staff to be able to adopt technology more quickly. But I think a lot of those barriers got broken with other banks and maybe were hesitant that this really, this crisis um, allow them to see the potential to partner with Ventex to be able to serve our customers in the best way possible. Yeah. John, I love having you on from Plaid because when you think about the the impact y'all can have and who you partner with, and 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 again, I keep saying this, policy wonk, you're my policy wonk king lately, so I keep calling you that. I'm going to get you a t-shirt. <laughs> um, were you surprised to see such a quick movement to allow companies like PayPal, Cabbage, OnDeck, and others, so traditional fintech players on the lending side, becoming part of these programs? Um, I was a little bit surprised, but I would say not shocked. And the reason for that is I don't think that is any sort of uh, special access for those fintech lenders. It was really a recognition by Congress that fintech now plays an essential role in the United States financial economy. Uh, it's something that consumers and small businesses have been relying on for uh, five to 10 years as just their day-to-day -day reality. It's something that banks have been increasingly pushing into. Um, and when the moment of crisis hit, really, it accelerated, as I think Jane and Jill both said, it accelerated trends that were already happening and really just catalyzed them into an incredible moment of energy and drive across the entire ecosystem. One thing that Jill said that I would just like to double click on is, you know, for a lot of the last 10 years of fintech, many banks sort of saw it as something they wanted to keep arm's length from, right? Uh, they had their own digital strategies, but weren't necessarily sure that the digital transformation coming out of fintech companies was exactly the right thing for them. 
over the last three weeks, I think we've seen those same banks uh, who suddenly see an immense need or value from data that they didn't have access to, in this case, payroll and small business data, transform their approach overnight and see the incredible value of digitizing their entire approach in order to meet the demand of something like this. And uh, Jane said it first, but I'll steal it from her and repeat it back. This is not a change that's going to reverse coming out of this crisis. This is something that was already a trend. We've now put so much effort into it across the entire ecosystem that really I would expect this to be the new normal for all of financial services. Yeah, we are. This has definitely been an all hands on deck. There's my Navy coming out. Sorry, Jill. Uh, but this is a uh, this is an all hands on deck moment. And if there's one thing that's really inspired me, it has been watching um, just the sheer brilliance of community banks, for example, and what they've been able to do. Fintech companies stepping up. I mean, every single one of you offered different programs. I was I was interviewing some folks from Cabbage earlier today on the call and talking about that gift certificate program they put out, how quickly they're rolling out to be part of this PPP program. Um, and, and Jill, if you don't trademark economic first responders and have t-shirts made, um, 11FS will. So, um, uh, you know, it, unfortunately, we're, we're actually right on time for our first break, so we're going to take it. But in the second half of the show, one of the things I'd really like to talk about is looking back on the lessons learned of the initial rollout, right? What we've gone through um, in such a short period of time and what lessons we can take going forward, right? I mean, the, the, the need is so dramatic. So folks, we're going to jump to a break and hear from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users entrusted by the world's largest bank, MyTech provides tomorrow's identity verification for today's uncertainty. See how MyTech Systems more at MyTechSystems.com. That's M-I-T-E-K, MyTech. Now I'm at the second half of the show. All right, folks, in the first half, we talked a lot about um, what we've seen over the past couple of weeks um, in response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis and especially around small business banking um, and its impact in the U.S. and the PP loans that went out. So now we want to talk a little bit more on how fintechs are aiming to provide solutions for SMEs. So one, um, we should talk about Square. So Square Capital on Monday um, last week received the SBA approval as a PPP lender. The company said it would start rolling out PPP loan applications this week, working in partnership with Celtic Bank. I think that's Celtic Bank or Celtic Bank. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Square Capital said it would notify sellers through Square Dashboard when their application is available, starting with employees whose application data can be verified automatically. Not only that, but their founder, Jack Dorsey, donated $1 billion to COVID-19 relief funds. I think that was something like 28% of his wealth or 25% of his wealth, if I remember right. Um, similarly, MX last week, they launched an SBA loan application portal for banks and credit unions. So, uh, Jane, I'm going to give you a little shout out on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, I think we were responding to the pain point that both Jill and John have pointed out, which is the extreme heavy lift that is taken by people who work within institutions to process these applications. And it was taking, you know, 30 plus minutes to do a single application. So it real and they were, you know, if you really look at the art form that is forms, especially government forms, there's been a lot of issues. I mean, just to, to call out one of the pain points was the form required a nine digit zip, but it was an open form box. 
So it didn't ever say you need a nine-digit, you know, nine-digit zip. So you've got bankers like Googling addresses of, of businesses to be able to submit the application. So we had a number of MX employees spin up what is an open source and free portal um, over a weekend, including the chief technology officer, Brandon DeWitt, chief product officer, um, Brett Allred, like everyone was hands-on and got this stood up very quickly. And, you know, partnering especially with, you know, community banks and banks and credit unions that are in more distressed areas, like, for example, uh, Central Pacific Bank in Hawaii, right? Hawaii has had 25% of their uh, population apply for unemployment in the last month, right? It's, it's hospitality. It's a whole industry, you know, died very quickly. So the more, the faster we could get even just that one institution's applications processed, the better. So it really was just around solving the application process. And now uh, we're psyched to have it in place for this next round of funding. Yeah. One thing you're never supposed to do on a podcast is give other podcast shout outs. Um, I love breaking that rule. Um, NPR Planet Money did an excellent show that I'll provide a link to um, on this. They actually had um, a small business owner, I think it was New Jersey or in Queens, if I remember right, who was uh, attempting to apply for a loan for her auto shop. And it was just checking in with her almost every other day in the process. She was, there were so many golden gems in that podcast. I absolutely loved it. Um, and, and Jane, you noted this. One of the major pain points on applying for this is around the payroll data that you have to provide the payroll portion of the applications. Because um, uh, part of that process, they have to download their payroll data and share it with their bank who needs to verify it and process the information. Um, and that normally can take days or weeks to get this done and it's all done manually. So John at Plaid, you guys have also done some work wrapped around this, right? Yeah. And really this was an extension of uh, Plaid's core value prop and our, I would say even more than that, our philosophy, uh, which is that the consumer, and in this case, small businesses own their own data and have the right to access it and use it to improve their lives. The big problem that we saw at the beginning of this crisis was the most important numbers that any small business would need is how big of a loan do they qualify for? And the answer is two and a half times your average monthly payroll over the last 12 months. Well, how do you get that? The best place to get that is from your payroll provider. Um, but there was no easy way for small businesses to do effectively what any consumer can do with a personal financial management app and go in, look at their payroll data get a report out from it, and instantly share it with the lender to qualify them for the loan. Uh, so that's what the team here built. Uh, it's probably the most inspiring thing that I've seen at my time at Plaid was how quickly the engineers and product people threw themselves into building brand a brand new tool. And I, I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. This was eight days from start to finish to when we had it in production with customers using it to originate loans into this program. Um, now that there's a new set of money coming, we are really, really excited to see how many lenders who have now been qualified can build their flows around the easy access to this data. Um, I talked to one fintech lender uh, over the weekend who said, they think that uh, with a tool like this in place, they are aiming for an ambitious goal of being able to originate a million small business loans once the program is stood up and they have access to more funds. So, so Jill, you're, you're the frontline 
economic first responders. So you got a tagline out that I absolutely love. You've, you've lived through this process. And for anybody that's followed Jill on Twitter um, and, and other community bankers that have been doing this, um, you know, it's as if you've lived through 10 years in about two weeks, right? I mean, just the volume of time that you're putting into this. How, how many employees do you have, Jill? I have 55 and two that had e-train access. <laughs> Sorry, that just came out. I didn't mean to laugh. I'm just thinking well, and about the, that. And they had never used it before. So, you know, whenever you talk about the work that MX is doing that allow us to, you know, ping um, eTram with just one user account information, that that's making a real difference um, to these small businesses because that allows us to get more loans through the system. And what um, what what's happening over in Plaid, like getting that payroll data when the when they when the small businesses applying for these loans and they don't have that information readily available, they could lose their place in line if they're not able to get expeditiously that information entered into eTran to get the authorization that they need. And so, um, all of the the fintechs coming together to allow um, these first responders to really um, work efficiently. Is making such a huge impact in the economy and, and will be the difference maker as we look in this net set of funding. Yeah, so let's talk about the next set of funding, okay? One of the most important things from a military standpoint, Jill and I are going to geek out a little bit because um, we're both ex-military. So, so Jill, was, Jill was Army. I was Army and Navy. Let's just get you that were, clear. You were. I, I don't did. know why you don't give us more love. But. I know, because uh, I spent more in the Navy. Um, plus, I did boot camp at Fort Benning, Georgia. You get no love. In the middle of freaking July in 1984, it's not happening. Oh, my God, the memories from that. Um, Navy was much easier, just saying. Um, but one of the things that's very important um, when you're in a, a firefight, all right, or when you've seen action is what we call an after-action report, which – and now the military is very good at that, meaning they do it real time. As soon as you get back um, to HQ, if you've been on the front lines, the very first thing you do is jump on the equivalent of a very confidential Zoom call and share these experiences um, and, and make sure that you're able to provide a summary of what happened, your learning experiences, and make immediate policy or procedural changes. And that's, that's one thing I think the military has gotten incredibly good at um, and very proud of them for that. So let's go through that, if you don't mind, with the three of you. Let's do an after-action report on what we just went through. And now with this next round of funding, what would we do differently or what should we consider? And I'll give you a starter for this. Um, I live in Florida. One of my senators is Rick Scott, um, former governor here. Um, um, I'm staying completely away from politics. Um, and what I'm saying is he actually came out with something that I really thought was good uh, today. And he said that one of the mistakes was seeing businesses who are at scale being able to get these loans. And we talked about this earlier. I, I, I actually don't fault some of these folks for applying for the loans. Um, you know, if, the, if, if, if <laughs> when you're allowed, I kind of get it, right? So if you're looking back um, on this, what lessons learned can we take from this to say, okay, with this next round, let's either do this differently or let's do this better. And just because you're in DC, John, and because I'm watching, we're doing a Zoom call, everybody who's listening to this, and I still haven't figured out what in the hell is behind John's head. That thingy. It looks like thought bubbles, like you're thinking a lot. But as policy man in D.C., what what do you think we should do differently or better? What, what are some of your recommendations? So two suggestions. Um, one, uh, we saw the initial tranche of loans tended to skew to the biggest and best connected of the small businesses that needed it. 
I think it would be uh, really important in this next round to set aside a pool of money to small loans so that borrowers who only need a small amount of money are able to tap that without having to compete with very large five, $10 million loans to draw down funds. Uh, a number I've seen uh, members of Congress talking about over the last couple of days is $100 billion set aside for loans under $50,000. Um, I have not seen that in the text that's being debated right now, but hopefully that will come through so that really small mom and pop operations have an ability to compete for these loans uh, before they run out. The second big takeaway is that hours make a difference. Literally, hours make a difference. Um, fintech lenders did not get even the application to participate in this until five days after banks were already making loans and didn't get approved until seven days after. Um, they're now ready to go, but there's another program that's going to be important for the sustainability of this. The Federal Reserve has set up a facility to purchase these loans from lenders, which allows them to recapitalize and make new loans. That facility is open to banks right now. The Fed has said that they expect to open the facility to non-bank fintech lenders in the near future. Hours matter. Billions of dollars go out the door every hour when this program is up. The faster the Fed acts to put fintechs on par with the banks, the better able those fintechs will be to make loans to the customers they serve. And I know one thing, great summary, because everybody on Zoom was nodding like crazy. Um, one thing I'll note, Jill, um, from your standpoint, um, again, we're talking a, <laughs> this is a very small bank in, in Oklahoma. All right. Love them. But y'all aren't exactly, you know, Bank of America, a very small bank in Oklahoma. You were able to get the attention of Mark Cuban. As a matter of fact, you got two phone calls from Mark Cuban around this very early on. And you were also to be able to be on calls with um, Senator Rubio for example, um, from Florida. So again, the ability for a bank with one branch to be talking to two very large voices in this space, um, I'm giving you a very silent golf clap, Jill. So so what would you add on to that? Looking back at what you just went through and looking to the next tranche that we're going to go through, what are you, some of your recommendations? Um, so from a legislative standpoint, I think John's right on as far as needing some type of focus on the smaller guy. Um, I will speak a little bit um, because there's the PPP lending facility that John spoke about, which is great because it moves, um, it, it creates some, ba some balance sheet opportunities for banks because it gets both the liquidity as well as the capital. But the Main Street lending program, the minimum loan amount for it is a million dollars that the Fed uh, came out with. And that amount needs to be lower to complement this program. So that's one where the banks can sell off loans that they do for small businesses. And it's meant to be kind of make even PPP more effective. Also, the limitations with PPP where it, um, there's only 25% of the non-payroll expenses that the that the business can take as the loan, that for it, some of these small businesses is way too little. So many of them are converting this from being a grant program essentially to just being a two-year loan because they need the liquidity and then they can't retain their staff because they have all these other operating expenses associated with them. As far as making this more successful, the banks have to have some type of spillover capacity. We had 
uh, I was trying to place um, customers in all types of banking relationships throughout the nation because I couldn't serve them. I need some type of fintech option that's funded because what was happening is that fintechs were providing an option, but they didn't have the funds to be able to deploy. And so a lot of those customers got left out um, to make sure that we have really good fintech options or, or partnerships throughout the country that we can spill over non-customers, non-community, and it's more than what my little 55 member bank can handle, but that I know the network of who is doing these loans and who will do them for non-customers. So um, obviously two great summaries so far. Um, Jane, I'm going to throw to you now. Um, and to give everybody just a little bit of background on Jane, uh, the accent you hear is not one from Utah. That is an Australian accent. But Jane is a startup founder. I mean, you've served on, you've started companies, you've served on boards and, and across the globe, right? So throughout Asia, uh, um, in New York and and now um, in Utah. So you are somebody who's been on the, as a founder and on the small business side. So when you look at this, what would you say some of the additional points we should take into account? Um, so thanks for calling that out. It's uh, it's something that is challenging when like I've lived in lived and worked in six different countries, and the U.S. financial system is by far the most complicated as is the regulatory system, as is the compliance system. And it is, and it sometimes is like other countries, you know, again, no one is perfect, but there are lessons to be learned. Um, I feel like this is a, a real opportunity for us to be bolder across the entire system. Um, and it is definitely in the spirit of, of competition in that, like, given everything that data can do, you know, why can't people apply directly to the small BA, to the SBA, get approval and then go and shop their loans, right, with participating, um, with participating um, institutions and fintechs. So I feel like there is a time that we can say, you know, let's, let's try something new. It's there is not to waste a, uh, not to waste a crisis, but there is the time to be going out and, uh, and saying, um, you know, what else can we do? Like we're, we're following protocol. And again, with AML and KYC and all of the things that we need to do, is there another way? You know, is there a way for a, a small business to get a check mark that, yes, they've passed through this information gate once. Why do they have to go to another bank and do it again or another credit union do it again, another fintech and do it again? Like the data is there. And it is, there is so much richness there and there are so many brilliant companies doing brilliant things to get approval and to get funds flowing. Like, how can we do it better? So I'm curious, um, and I'll ask each of you your opinion on this. Um, uh, anybody that predicts the future is a fool. Right? <laughs> no future facts. Uh, yeah. Um, it, you know, if you're trying to predict what's going to happen, good luck. Because if I would have told you two months ago, this is a situation we're going to be in, y'all would have told me I was a moron. Um, and I would have been absolutely shocked. Right. Um, um, I mean, two months ago, I was busy talking about London Club acquiring Radius Bank and, you know, um, uh, Viral Bank, you know, getting FDIC approval. And we're all high fiving each other and saying, damn, look at where FinTech is going. And now, um, so predicting the future is hard to do. That said, you know, I'm going to throw that question to you. So John, starting with you, um, let's look past the next two months, but if you look into Q3, Q4 and going into 2021, um, wh where do you, wh where do you see us? Um, uh, especially as far as 
um, from a U.S. economic standpoint with small businesses? Putting you on the spot. Uh, so if you're going to put me on the spot of the macro economy, I'm going to demur and say I am optimistic that we are going to have a V-shaped curve here, but I am not the most qualified person to answer. What I will say in terms of the big trends and where I would predict out is that um, I th- we talked a little bit earlier about everyone accelerating their digital trends. I really see that coming out of this. I see an increasingly blurred line between traditional financial services institutions like banks and credit unions and fintechs. I think the acquisitions and partnerships you just referenced are the start of that blurring of the line, and I expect it to continue. Um, And I expect a continued focus on the fact that a financial services digital digital strategy is a data access strategy. That really is what everything is going to be built on. Um, And I think that trend is just going to accelerate. I think it will in particular accelerate for small businesses who have realized that uh, unlike consumers, they don't have statutory access to their financial services information. Uh, Dodd-Frank came out of the last crisis and gave consumers the right to access it. All of the fintechs you see in the world right now exist because consumers have that right. Small businesses don't. They're going to ask for it, and you're going to see a new wave of fintech built around small business data access. So Jane, would you agree with that? And um, I I know I, for one, look at this, and we've talked about this earlier, right? That this is a tipping moment um, in the US when it comes around digital initiatives. Uh, Do you think we can actually pull this off? Um, Absolutely. Again, I think there there is so much innovation and there is so much access already. I think there has been a fairly hefty you know, regulatory and environment, a regulatory environment and compliance needs that have made um, companies nervous about engaging in more innovation, more data-driven innovation. But uh, the the need is absolutely there. And I think, you know, one thing that, and I'm not also, there are no future facts. I'm not going to make a call on the, the future economy. However, just the U.S. economy's reliance on consumer spend for GDP, like 70 plus percent of the U.S. GDP is consumer spend. And, you know, we see real time what is happening with people's spending patterns. And, you know, there is a chance that, and, you know, from a category level spending, obviously, you know, restaurants travel very much down, groceries and other stores very much up. There is um, the chance that long term people will change their spending habit. But it doesn't mean that, like, no one spends anymore. Like, we have to be prepared for a different environment but still one where, you know, payments are processed easily, where people do have access to their data, where you can make, you know, you can get insights and advice that you need. And if there is one thing that comes out of this is, um, as you know, you know, Sam, I do a lot of financial education, the amount of questions that are coming, just what should I do? Like this thirst for advice in financial services, that is something where if you can get, insights from someone's data and present them with here's some options or here's what people in your zip code do like that's hugely beneficial so jill you're going to get the last word um one of the things i want to get from you is around community banks because i would say over the past few years a lot of talk from stage and in, in the press has been around the the uh the hit that community banks have taken right and the sheer number of them 
and and um, and what's happening in that space. And yet, I would say right now, community banks have been a shining star, an example of what can happen, and the and just the desperate need for them, for 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 communities. I don't care if they're urban or rural, the desperate need for them. So I'm allowing you to give a little forecast looking out over the next six months, the year, the role community banks are going to play. I think this crisis has shown how important it is to have local accountability and local decision making and what a privilege that is when you bank somewhere that has that where you can say, why, you know, someone could say, are you doing this? When can I get access? Can you give me a status of where I am in the queue? And someone's on the ground that is in the community with you that you pass in the grocery store aisles whenever we can go to grocery stores and um, that that really cares and gets you and is accountable to you. And um, I think that that's going to be a giant leap forward for community banking as we see fintech doing such good work during this time, oftentimes for free or open source, really to give us the tools to be able to execute well for right here on the ground. Um, and I think the, the level of partnerships that will be available to both fintech and community banks is going to go to, again, another another level and, and be something that fuses those two together rather than having them separate apart as being partners in something, but rather more a fusion of that. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be really exciting. If anyone wants to experiment with us, hey, we're game. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. I'll go ahead and say that. Um, and that's actually a good way for me to get out of this and do an outro. Um, so one of the things I want to do is make sure the people that listen to this are able to get a hold of you. So if you want to actually innovate and, and work with um, Jill and Citizens Bank of Edmond, what's the best place to find out more, Jill? I'm just... I'm available through any kind of social media and anyone can text me. I sell numbers out there for the world to see. So um, I'm super, I'm the most accessible um, person probably alive. So just get to me and through any outlet. Uh, honest to God, you can go on Twitter and find her cell number. Uh, Mark Cuban got it that way. Um, and, and I want to give a shout out. When are we going to have Herd on Herd? Because I need to get out there. So it was supposed to, our 119th birthday was on Saturday and, and Oklahoma was found in 1907. We're from 1901. So we do this big community event every month. Of course, we don't now, but and we have about 50,000 people that come to downtown Evan for a, a bank party. And so it's the third Saturday every month. And so we're hoping that we can probably start that up again in, in June. I don't think May is going to work, but we're planning on doing a virtual um, herd on herd in May. So we're gearing up for that. Um, when it actually does happen, John and Jane and I are going to fly out. We are going to go on stage and do karaoke. Very drunk. All right, Jane, what about you? <laughs> what about you and MX? Best place to go and learn more about y'all. Um, so MX.com. Um, we have a, a whole separate piece around our uh, PPP program. Like I said, it's open source. It's uh, very simple to get engaged. So yeah, MX.com and me, like the rest of us on all the social medias and and john policy walk john with plaid best place to get a hold of you yeah i'm the exception to the all social medias uh because as a policy nerd i'm only on the nerdiest one linkedin uh, but you can find me there more importantly um you can go to uh, blog.plaid.com for the latest news from plaid and you can always meet, reach me through there and if you really want to read some great pieces uh Zach Barrett at, at Plaid really has become one hell of a writer. So some of his posts are just fantastic. So can't recommend them enough. As for me, Sam All, I'm a horrible writer. Um, but man, I like to talk. 
So check me out on Twitter. Listen to our daily show that we do on LinkedIn Live, um, 10.30 Eastern Time every day. Follow 11FS on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. Um, five stars, please. Um, make sure you share it with your friends. Tell them about the show. Tell them about the live show that we do. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech, who hasn't listened to Fintech Insider, pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you, all three J's, for being on the show. Really enjoyed it. Everyone else, thanks for listening. <laughs>